Hello and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last years of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that her dementia taught us as a family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to everyone involved. This podcast is named after a quote from Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this, too. My guest today is one of the UK's best-loved cartoonists whose award-winning work has appeared in publications as diverse as The Times, The Sunday Express and The Spectator, to Private Eye, The Sun and Playboy. In the 80s, he co-devised Oink, a popular children's comic, and its TV spin-off, Round the Bend. He's also written 60 cartoon books. Created from the tip of his head to his northern roots, he was born in Blackpool, he has a thinking couch on which he lies with a blank piece of paper filling it with ideas. I love the creative process, he says. I love deadlines too, they focus your mind. There's a huge lake of creativity and ideas and fortunately, I've tapped into it. Now 69, he shows no signs of letting up, finding inspiration in life, people, pets, work and hobbies. It's about looking at life, he says, and seeing where you can laugh at it, because it's so bloody hard sometimes. He is, of course, Tony Husband. Following the death of his dad, Ron, in 2011, he's turned his considerable wit and skill to the topic of dementia. Ron lived with vascular dementia for his last five years or so, eventually having to give up his home in Wernithlow in the Pennines in Greater Manchester, nearby Tony and his two brothers, and move into a care home. A few months after Ron died, Tony sat in his studio after a long day of deadlines, thinking about his dad, he started to ask him about his dementia. And somehow, somewhere, inside Tony's head, possibly helped by the bottle of Rioja he'd opened, Ron began to reply. Tony drew the conversation in cartoons on a few pages of A4 paper, which he later showed to his friend, the comedian Stephen Fry, who asked if he could tweet the pages. The tweets went viral. And before he knew it, Tony had a publisher wanting to turn them into a book. And so, Take Care, Son, was born. Its title is taken from the last words Ron ever said to Tony. And in his spare, amusing style, it encapsulates what it is to watch someone you love succumb to dementia. From the way the condition slowly creeps into everyone's life, to the irritation, heartbreak and guilt it produces. It shows the power of music to connect even towards the end and the ability of humour to communicate the most difficult messages and the potent force of filial love. So, Tony Husband, welcome to Well, I Know Now. Hello, Pepper. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Tony. Good, good. That was a nice intro. It made me very emotional. Oh. <laughs> it took me back. It took me back. I think people are always surprised, but it's all true, isn't it? Yeah, it is all true. I mean, the quote from Sylvia Platt is strange because Sylvia's daughter, Frida Hughes, is one of my best friends. You're kidding. So, 
No, I'm what, Ted Hughes not... and, Fr- and Sylvia's daughter? Yeah, Freddie Hughes. Oh, um, my I'm goodness. Freedie, from my old Groucho Club days, 20-odd years, so um, probably longer. And which also is quite strange because... I've written a couple of poems about during the time with my dad with dementia. Yes. Could I start with reading one of them? Of course. Um, I'd be delighted, yeah. It's called When I Could Remember. And this was me sat with my dad one day and he hadn't said anything at his cottage and he hadn't communicated at all. And I just thought, I said to him, Dad, um, United are on tonight, which is Manchester United, the team we all love. And he he looked up and smiled and went, gave me the thumbs up. And I thought, you know, some people might think he's not there, but he, he is, he was. And so I wrote this poem and it goes, when I could remember. I can just about remember when I could remember everything of the thoughts in my head and the pleasures that they could bring. But I know the darkness now and it's getting darker still. My mind, it seems, is closing down and not of my free will. Please sit with me and hold my hand to let me know you understand. Although my mind is not so clear, I'm still me and I'm still here. And... I wrote it with Dad sat there, basically. Mm. Um, I read it to him, and he just sat and didn't communicate, but he was um, he took it in. I know he did. I know he did. So, And I've got a poem I can read at the end as well, which is about my dad again. So um, it's all part of creativity and, yes. and dementia and creativity, which we'll perhaps talk right. about. Yeah. Sorry, I think that's my dog trying to get in. I will <laughs> just let Bert in. Sorry, hang on a sec, everybody. Come on in, Bert. <laughs> oh, sorry, Tony. It's okay. I've, I've got my dog, Sevy, named after the golfer. And Sevy is sat under my, as he always is, under my desk. He sits there all the time. To go back to that poem, which is just beautiful and it hits home very powerfully for me, because you're, the second thing you said, actually, that you know now is that though people with dementia may seem lost to you, they're still yeah. that person, and of course, that really lies at the heart of everything, doesn't it? Well, absolutely, and you know that's what people should know that the person is still there; it's still that person. They're just not in that space with you, and the mind isn't in that space. Mm. But they are aware of you at a level, and they're glad that you're there. Mm. You know, they, they are totally glad and, and feel secure that you're there. I know that with my dad; yes. he could be quite agitated but you'd sit with him for a while and then you'd hold his hand or you'd talk to him and read something to him and he'd just relax and calm down and he knew then that he was in a safe place absolutely it's that security isn't it and the yes. emotional the emotional yeah. connectivity yes. that, that still happens i was going to ask you actually to start by taking you back really to your northern roots and asking you to draw for us but obviously this time in in words a picture of your childhood. Well, I was born in Blackpool. My dad was entertainment manager at um, Squiresgate Holiday Camp in Blackpool, which is now a housing estate, I believe. We lived there for about till I was five, and moved in towards Manchester to live with my grandma, my dad's mum, in Ardenshaw, which is about five ten miles from Manchester. And then we moved up to Wernerthlow, which is where I live now into a little cottage and the cottage was lovely there was just me my mum and dad at the time and it was quite isolated in fact we didn't have any running water we had to you know stoke a fire up I don't know how my mum managed it because my dad was away a lot and then she had my two brothers Jim and Keith very close together and then my other brother Ronnie who now lives in Scotland he came about 10 years after me so my mum lived 
we lived in this remote cottage. She didn't drive. My dad was away a lot. And basically she brought us all up without any running water. We had an alga cooker, which fumes into the house. And we had to go to, there was a well with clear water, which you had to boil, obviously, but we had a little pickup truck that went and filled the buckets with water and brought them back and boiled them. And I remember she had a ringer, you know, to ring out the washing. And, oh, but, yes, my mum had one of those, I remember. But we, we lived in the countryside and we were free to just run and play and just we'd play football 24 hours a day. All four of us loved football. We'd all, I'm big Man United fans. I mean, my first memory of, of Man United was going into the front room and my mum was there and she was crying and I just said, what's the matter, mum, what, what's wrong? And it was, I think it was seven. She'd always been a plane crash and some of the Manchester United mm, players died. Mm, mm. And that was Munich. And so that's my first memory of, of United and mm. uh, a memory that I associate with my mum. So my dad was, he loved football. Um, he liked going to the pub a lot. I remember that. There's lots of arguments when my dad came back from the pub. And in those days, drinking and driving wasn't, the issue but yeah it was basically my members of childhood are playing out all the time coming back absolutely caked in mud um but being free and you know healthy yes and so. tell me you you say because i wanted to know how you became a cartoonist you worked in a jewelry shop for a while well basically i wanted to be an artist and i applied for various jobs in design studios textile design and wallpaper design but I wasn't that sort of artist, really. My style was too free and I needed the freedom. My first job was in an advertising agency called Wilson Advertising in Manchester. Mm. And in reception, they had all the punch magazines every week, you know, for the for the clients to read. And I just used to read these and then just see the cartoons. And I started to draw cartoons. And my dad, who was creative, had tried selling cartoons. I'd found some in his desk. And my dad didn't sell any. So I started to draw cartoons and, and found that I was a natural at it. It just came easy. And I was influenced by, you know, cartoonists from Punch like Mike Williams and Bill Tidy. Mm. I call myself Ant then, A-N-T for short for Anthony. So my first cartoons were all signed Ant. Right. And my first jobs really were, I did a couple of pages for the advertising agency. One of their clients was Burlington Catalogues and mm. they had a magazine and I did a page of cartoons for them, and that was my first paid gig. Okay. And then there were some hippie magazines in Manchester that I drew for, which I was a hippie. I didn't get paid, but they gave me albums that they had to review because I love music. Right. Music's mm. a massive part of my life. Mm. And so I'd get all these albums and draw cartoons. So that was when I realised that's what I wanted to be. Yes. But it took another 20 years before I could did it. I left the advertising, then became... Um, a window dresser for Burton Taylors. Again, thinking it would be creative, but it mm. wasn't on mm. the dude. You got a photograph of the window display and you would copy that, you know, so you mm. put the dummies and you'd iron the suits and it was... So I left there after a couple of years and became a jeweller, a, a job in jeweller, they call them, which is jewel repair. So if you take a ring or a chain that's broken into a jeweller's, they were sent it to like so I was in the studio. And... That's what I did for 12 years. I was rubbish at it. <laughs> I kept losing diamonds. You get a, a sub jewelry shop from, say, Workington and one from, say, Milton Keynes, and they'd send us packets of jewelry. And I'd repair them and then put the jewelry item back in and give them boss, post them off. Yeah. And next day, boss would get a phone call saying, We've got a silver chain in the packet that should have a four carat diamond ring in. <laughs> and he'd say, Who'd sign the back? 
It says T H and I Tony. Where's it? It was in that diamond ring and I don't know. So my boss would then spend the rest of the morning ringing all the jewel shop, hoping that someone hadn't come in who should get a silver chain and walk away with a diamond ring, thinking this is my day. Did, what happened to the so, um, diamonds? I mean, where did you find them? Oh, they, they came back because it should have been in Milton Keynes, but it had gone to work. <laughs> but it was the good thing about that was it's quite an intense job. And there's about eight of us there, and there was a really black sense of humour that mm. kind of mm. got us through because you're working with other people's jewellery and working with very valuable stones, you know, diamonds and sapphires. And, but what I did develop was a very sort of strong black humour, a dark sort of... There's always is a dark side to me, There's a, you know, humour-wise, and uh, mm. that comes out in my cartoons. Yeah. And then eventually they were looking for someone to make redundant, and I volunteered right. because... I'd had a book published called 100 Ways to Use a Severed Head. And it was, mm. I don't know if you remember, there was a book called 100 Ways to Use a Dead Cat. Yes. And it was kind of a copy of that, really. So mm. I got that published. And then... Pretty dark. I, yeah, very dark, because that's what it was. And so then I then turned full-time and became a cartoonist. What I did was, I was very prolific. And in those days, there was lots of magazines and newspapers that you could, there's not now. I was soon into the swing of it, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you worked for virtually every national paper and publication, really, didn't you? Yeah, that eventually. I mean, there was in those days, there was magazines like Weekend and Revelion Tidbits. Yes, I remember all those, yes. Weekly News, and they all had cartoons. The, the Sun and the Star had what they call them gag cartoons. It's like joke cartoons. Mm-hmm. And that's why I made a living from this, because like, I was very prolific. And mm-hmm. You liked deadlines, so didn't you? I got in touch with the Times and said, would well, you need a sports cartoonist? And they came back and said, well, if you send them in once a week, you know, we'll use them if we need them. And eventually the editor rang me and said, would you do a daily one for us? So that was six days a week, you know, except Sunday, doing cartoons for the Times, mm-hmm. which meant at four o'clock they would ring me with um, a story, like it could be about golf, football, tennis. By five o'clock I'd have sent them four ideas, and by 530 they would have okayed it and I'd drawn it and it'd be in the paper next day. So one and a half hours, start to finish. Yeah. Mm, and then tight on, turnaround. On the Sunday, yeah, on the Sunday, I'd worked for the Sunday Express sports pages. So I was doing that. Then Private Eye started buying my stuff and then Punch started buying my stuff. And I've been in Private Eye now for 35 years. That's a long time. That's yours. That's Yobs and Gags, you know, mm, doing cartoons. Yobs mm, mm, um, came because Ian Hislop had taken over at Private Eye and he liked my work, and I got a letter from him saying, I did a lot of skinhead cartoons, because I was beaten up by a gang of skinheads when I was a hippie, so I started taking my own back on them by drawing them, because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a violent person. <laughs> yeah. But then Ian wrote me a letter, an actual letter in those days, saying, we love your skinhead cartoons, do you want to do a strip? We'll call it Yobs, and we'll give it a short run, see how it goes, and that was 35 years ago. Brilliant, so, brilliant. Yeah. So you got your own back on those guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sweet yeah. revenge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then let's come forward a bit then to your dad, who was very musical. Yes, he was. He was a great boogie-woogie pianist and blues pianist. And he'd also be the sort of, if he was in a pub or a club and there was a piano there, he'd just sit down and start playing. And he was just great. And people would be dancing and singing along, Mm. you know. Mm. And your mum died sort of some 20-odd years before your dad. And your dad died in 2011. So he was a long time on his own. He was. Uh, my mum had cancer. She'd, um, yeah, she had back pains. And then 
found out she had cancer and the doctor said this was in May when we found out and he said the good news is you'll be able to send Christmas cards so he was more or less saying that she had you know that long mm -hmm. to live mm -hmm. um my mum was did everything in the house my dad didn't cook or what do anything so when she passed away we were thinking he's not going to cope it's going to be a nightmare this but he did he kind of started cooking he started washing and ironing and um so he, he, he adapted really well he was you know and he had his little dog. He had a dog called Charlie, and then he had a dog called Lossie, little Lossie from yes. Lossie Mouth. Yes, That's who comes Lossie. into the book, doesn't he? Yeah, Lossie does, yeah. Yes, yes. And when did you first start to see that anything was going wrong with your dad, that things weren't quite right? It's in small ways, really, but I get strange phone calls from him. It was the phone calls, I think, that were the first signs. You know, he'd, he'd just say, have you seen Keith? That's my brother who lives not far from me. And I say, not today, I don't know. I said, I've not seen him for months. So I said, oh, I thought Keith was, he was a painter and decorator, Keith. He said, oh, I thought Keith was working at your house. Oh, right, yes, yes, of course. Or he'd say, Dad, um, he had an appointment with the doctor. And I said, that was yesterday, Dad. You don't have another one, do you? Mm. And he goes, I must have, because I was supposed to see the doctor. Mm, mm. And we'd find out that... You know, and then he would ring me and he'd, he'd get a bit paranoid as well. And he'd say, I'm in this thing called Booper, which he'd got a lifetime membership of Booper from the company as a thank you. And he said, I'm, I can't do that. I can't have it because, you know, I'm not paying for it. I said, Dad, it's a gift from the company. Mm, mm. And he goes, no, I'll go to prison. And mm. I said, no, you won't, Dad. And he, he rang me one day. He said, I've got some good news for you. So I said, what's that? He said, I've cancelled that Booper thing. There was things like that that didn't mm. make sense. That, um, and it's like paranoia, which is quite common, isn't it? It is, yeah. He didn't trust anybody in the family. I mean, he said to my auntie, I believe, he said, these lads will never get anything from me. He was quite hard on us, really. Mm. And You say he was quite a hard-nosed chap, actually. He was. He was, a, a, you know, at school he was a fighter. He had incredibly curly hair like Jimi Hendrix. All right. Um, he was in a, a tough area and the people took the mickey, so he would fight them. And I remember when he was in hospital during the dementia with um, a water infection and there was a chap in the other bed and this chap said, is that Ron husband? And I said, yeah. He said, bloody hard beggar he was. He said, I was at school with him. I'd never cross him. <laughs> My dad didn't hear it because he was, you know, in the dementia world. Yeah, but, uh, so the two of them were there. And, yeah, I think his brother was bullied, Uncle Graham. And my dad spent a lot of his time protecting Uncle Graham. But he was he was also in business. He worked at GUS, yes, um, the mail order company, and he was like their troubleshooter. I remember one Christmas when I think Rally Bikes had failed on the delivery for all the Christmas presents, you know, to all the kids. Yes. And they sent my dad over to Rally and they were delivered next day. Right. And he really beat them up, you know, sort of yes. Yes. word-wise. Yes, yes. And, and he was living alone, your dad, when all this was happening. So, But you were all popping in. He was getting lots of visitors. But he was essentially on his own in quite an isolated cottage. He lived in a cottage on the back of Werneth Low, which is the hill that overlooks Hyde and 10 miles away. You can see Manchester, beautiful views all around towards the Pennines and, you know, Saddleworth and all, you know, these lovely places. They had a neighbour, a young family next door, because he'd sold the barn, which was the barn that we had with the cottage, and it's been converted into a house. And there's a young couple lived there with two young children. And there's a bungalow opposite, but they were never in. But he did have his car at the beginning. He loved driving around, going to see my aunties, you know, and he played golf at the golf club, which was five minutes away. So 
he had all these activities. He was a member of the War Memorial Society. There's a cenotaph on Wormuth Low. Mm. And there's a, a society, War Memorial Society, and he was chairman of that. And he was also in the Probus. He was in Probus. Mm. Mm. So he made himself active. He also loved painting watercolours. So he'd paint a lot and he had his piano, but he also had little lossy. What sort of dog? Westy, little mm, Westy. Mm, mm. Yeah. And then there came a point where you realised he'd he'd have to. I think it was because of a chip pan fire, wasn't it? You realised it was now dangerous well, and he'd have to. There was there's a few things. There's he rang me one night about eight o'clock and he said, You've got to come over here and look and see all these and I said, What? He said, There's aliens outside mm. and I'm waving to them and sending mm. them messages. So I said, how are you sending the messages? So he said, Morse code. So he said, you've got to come over. And I live by car five minutes away. So I drove over, and he's in the back room looking down the valley towards the Pennines, and he's flashing the Venetian blinds going, hello, come in for a cup of tea, welcome to our world. <laughs> and I said, Dad, what are you doing? So it was dark, it was, you know, winter time. So he said, look, and he said, there's one. And what it was was, there's two villages, little Glossop, not a village, Glossop and Marple, mm. and there's a road between them, and there were car headlights. Oh, and right. He thought they were aliens. And I said, Dad, those are, those are cars. Mm. And he kind of laughed. Mm. But then I got a phone call about three months later from him at three in the morning, and he said, you've got to come up here, they're outside again, and they're making a lot of noise, mm. and it's losses barking. So I said, Dad, it's three in the morning. I've told you what it is, it's the cars. So I said, I'll come in the morning. It was Saturday morning when I went up. And he went in and I saw that out of the window that his shed had been knocked down, all the bird tables were knocked over. Mm. And um, what had happened was a herd of cows had broken in from the field oh, and were rampaging around his house. And he was, must have been absolutely terrified. Because he must have been that, absolutely frightened to death. Oh, he would have been, you know, so I think, no, this is, mm. we're now not sure what's what. Mm. There's people he coming to the house. He thought he had a ghost too, didn't he? That was quite strange, the way he thought he had a ghost in the house. Yeah, that, that, he's a bit of a historian as well, my dad, is one of his many things. And In the farm, which was knocked down and made into a bungalow, and opposite, I live on a place called Apple Street. There was, in 1860, there was a lady murdered. The farmer's wife was murdered. And I think I found the murder weapon in our old barn, okay. right down the back of the eaves. What was it? An axe. Oh, my and she goodness. An axe and we were cleaning out the barn because we'd sold it. And I stuck my hands down these eaves, you know, and I came back out with this rusty old axe. I'm convinced that's the weapon. And my dad went on the radio and telling everybody that he'd found the weapon, which he didn't. But I'll forgive him for that. <laughs> but so he thought, with him disturbing the you know the members of this incident, he'd rouse the ghost of this lady. So he would lose his wallet or his mm. car keys and mm. he'd say the ghosts around. Mm. And, uh, mm. and then you'd find them in the microwave or the, the fridge or whatever. And there's also people come into the house that we didn't know. And he wouldn't know. And I said, mm. he said, who was that who came round today? And I said, I don't know, Dad, was it? It could have been family, it could have been his friends, it could have mm. been the social. But he was very vulnerable. Yeah, and there was one time when the social worker came round to see him, or the carer, and there's a guy sat there, and there's somebody playing his piano in the front room, banging on the piano. So this lady said, oh, hi, are you a friend? And he said, I've come to buy his caravan. And the caravan, he had a touring caravan to tour around Europe with my mum. Obviously, they didn't use it. But it was like 28 years old, and uh, it was rusty, and he'd come off his axle if he'd pulled it. 
So anyway, this bloke said, right, we're going, and shouted a name, and this little boy runs from the front room. Come on, we're going, and he gets up and goes out, just as my dad's neighbour, Susan, is just pulled in into the drive to drop off some shopping and then drive off. And um, this bloke comes out, starts effing and blinding at Susan, and so she has to move the car. So it's obviously he wasn't a friend. No. And a couple of things went missing, like paintings off his wall. Right. So things like that. And then, yes, there was the chip pan fire where he just turned it on and and left it and mm. it smoked. Mm. Mm. I mean, I'd been in the house before and I could smell this burning. Mm. And they had a little convector fire mm. and it was pointing to the floor and I pulled right. it up and it's all singed. Yeah. Where the, yeah, very dangerous. And said, what's that? And he just said, it's too hot, so I turned it away from me. So... I then went to see the doctor, Dr. Jolly, he's called, who's an eminent figure in the dementia world, and he just said it's time to take, you know, look for... Mm, which is very hard, and you say it was a very traumatic... Yeah, it which was. Which it I mean, sort of nearly always is. Mm. There's a place in Hyde called Hatton Grange that had been newly opened at a care home. It's named after the boxer Ricky Hatton, who, who was from Hyde. So we went to look at that, and... It was really nice, and you could go in when you wanted. So as a family, we're thinking, Dad is so independent, and he won't like it. So they said, well, we have this respite care thing where he can come in for a week, mm. and if he likes it, you know, stay. If he doesn't, if he really kicks off, then, you know, you've got a choice. So that was how we kind of didn't feel the guilt of taking him in. Because mm. mm. we thought, if he doesn't like it, we can bring him out. Yes. But what the worst thing for me was, I took him in and we left the cottage and he had lost his little dog on his knee mm. and all his bags in the boot. He said, where are we going? I said, it's kind of a holiday, Dad. You know, it'd be fine. You'll like it. He said, oh, right, great. He said, uh, I remember him saying, what about your mum? What about Vera? Right. And I said, well, my mum's always with us, Dad. She'll be with us. She'll be there. Don't worry. But what I knew and what he didn't know was that when he got to the care home that we'd have to take Lossie off him because mm. dogs weren't allowed to stay. They could visit. Mm. So my dad's holding Lossie in the care home mm. and I said, Dad, I'm going to take Lossie. And he said, no, you're taking Lossie. No, no one touches Lossie. And mm. struggling to get lost the off him and we got him and the, the lady just said just go with the dog and my dad was crying and banging on the on the door and I looked back and I just sat in the car you know drove off and sat and pulled up and just burst into tears sat with yeah. Lossie yeah. on my knee sort of hugging Lossie yeah. and Lossie was fine Lossie lived here because got a big garden and um, mm. my dad had actually imprisoned Lossie in a way because he was so frightened of losing her he wouldn't let her out and he couldn't go for walks anymore so Lossie rarely went out so suddenly Lossie had lots of freedom. And and how long did it take your dad? Did he forget about Lossie? He, he, he didn't forget. He accused us of wanting to get rid of him so he could we could sell the house, right. which we didn't. We didn't sell the house until he'd gone, you know, I made sure. But he he kind of remembered. He said, he, he came in and he's like, have you bought your Rolls Royce yet? So mm. I said, what do you mean, Dad? And mm. he just said, have you sold the house and made the millions you're mm. all wanting? Mm. Mm. But within three or four days, he felt comfortable there. And I could take Lossie with me every time we came. Mm. But then he started to ask, within a week, he kept just mentioning the dog. He'd say, is, is the dog all right? Mm. He couldn't remember his name. And, and occasionally, what's happening at the cottage? Is it okay? Mm. And I said, it's fine, the cottage said, it's waiting for you whenever you want to go. Mm. You're not a prisoner here. Mm -hmm. And he settled in there. He had his picture on the door so that we knew which was his room. He had a nice room. And we, we got him a keyboard 
You mentioned that because you say you thought it was a waste of time because he couldn't use a remote control. Yeah, I was saying he couldn't use remote control for the television, so he didn't have that on. And then Jim, my brother, said, I think we should get him a keyboard. I said, Jim, it's not worth it. It's just confusing. And Jim said, well, I think we should give it a go. But it was the best thing we did. And it also also for the care home because whenever there was a party we'd do our Christmas or a birthday, mm-hmm. they'd get my dad out with his keyboard. He'd start playing. They'd all start dancing. And everybody knew the words Fantastic. to heart, you know. Fantastic. They just knew it, so it was great. Yeah. I caught him playing. I was sat with him once, and um, he was playing this, like, really moody sort of, like, Rick Wayman type stuff rather mm. than the boogie-woogie. And then I said, Dad, that's beautiful. I said, is that yours? And he just he said, he turned to me and said, yes, because music gives me freedom. And oh. I thought that was mm. beautiful and mm. so profound, really. Mm. So um, he got a girlfriend as well. Oh, yes. Um, she called Sylvia, mm. and... He'd go in and he'd be sat with her holding hands and he said to me, we go everywhere together, which was basically mm. just around the care home, mm. you know, because they weren't allowed out. Mm. And um, the only time my dad, he was, became very gentle, my dad, because he had quite a temper, but in the care home he had became a real gentle person. Mm. But the only time he kicked off was once when he came into the restroom and Sylvia was sat with another chap. Oh. Mm. And uh, my dad went for him and he was like, oh, my God. I wasn't there, but... Uh, and the funny thing was, when I do a talk on the book, you know, a PowerPoint presentation, and I've done hundreds of them around the country, and I was in a place called Hebden Bridge mm. doing my talk, and mm. I mentioned Sylvia. Mm. And afterwards, I'd signed a few books, and people went away. They were saying, oh, you know, it's touched them. But one lady stayed behind. She said, can I just tell you something? So she said, my mum was Sylvia. Oh, golly. Oh, my God. And we just hugged each other and both cried. Wow. So she said, she loves your dad. And I said, mm. yeah, my dad loves Sylvia as well. So. Mm, which just goes to show, doesn't it, that, you know, I am still me and the emotion's still there. And Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And um, I can still have feelings for someone and mm. still love that sort of... Mm, and it's so important. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. And that's mm. what shouldn't be forgotten. Mm. All these st- wonderful stories that you've been telling us, they're really all amazingly encapsulated in this fairly small book, Take Care, Son. And I was just thinking that as you went through them, because you've got Lossie, you've got the ghost, you've got, you know, how the dementia affected your dad, the losing of the car, the going into the care home, Sylvia. It, it's yeah. all there um, in this lovely spare and, and comic way. And you and I were saying when we talked earlier the importance, actually, often of getting messages across through humour. I'm a great believer in that. And yeah. also you talk, another one of your your things you know now is, you know, the power of the of, of creativity through all this. Yeah, it is. And, I mean, since that book came out, I've kind of gone into the dementia world where, and I've done projects all over the country, creative projects with people living with dementia, people... With universities, I've worked with, I think you know, Agina Howard, who's yes. got wonderful. And we did a calendar together, and we're doing another desk calendar this year. Good, because I've got mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In 2019, it's yeah. yeah. It's for the Exeter Dementia Alliance. And I'd have worked with the Exeter University and creating these wonderful, they like marching banners, you know, like the miners' banners mm. for groups. Um, with people all over the country who live with dementia mm. and we've done them in Exeter there's an allotment in Exeter which is called Budding Friends mm. and we worked with them and um, created this banner for them and one for people in Oldham one for people in Leeds and it's creativity is it's just the way to tell the story like you say in the book it's being so simple mm. 
but so effective that people just get it. Mm. And when I do my talk around the country as well, people afterwards, they come up and say, I totally understand where you're coming from. And mm. It makes people laugh and cry, you know. Exactly, and I think the laughter helps with some of the fear and stigma. Yeah. Oh, it does, it does, absolutely. And, um, you know, that's what I found. And with people living with dementia as well, they can just... I do this thing called the cartoon confessional, where I take people's sins, draw them, and hand them back, and they're redeemed. Um, I've drawn them <laughs> Could you do that for models. me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'd be there all day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Tony. <laughs> but I've, I've done them at rock festivals, so it's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm, mm. But I've done them in care homes, and um, I did them in extra for the budding friends. And I said, right, and they're all allotment. You know, it's the allotment was their thing. And I just said, right come on, that's a confession time, and they're all sat there not saying anything with their partners and carers. Mm. And I said, oh, come on, I'm mm. looking at you now. You've got lots of stories to tell. So this lady nudged her husband who had dementia and just said, tell them about the slugs. <laughs> and he basically was, um, he said, oh, he said, well, what it was, I, I had my allotment, and the bloke next door, you know, was really annoyed him. I didn't like him at all. So he said, I used to get all the slugs from my allotment and throw them into it. <laughs> And, <laughs> and he said to me once, I've got loads of bloody slugs in my allotment. He said, I can't see any in yours. And the bloke said, oh, that's tough. <laughs> and then, so there's things like that. It was lovely. And once one opened and, and one of the guys said, well, I used to sell strawberries, but I didn't grow them. So this um, <laughs> why I should always cheeky beggar. And basically what happens was that the guy in the next allotment had a strawberry bush that hung over into his allotment. And he oh, told that him, counts, about, surely. Yeah, well, he told the guy, he said, the only strawberries are following him. So the, anyway, this guy came to him, he said, how come you're selling strawberries and you don't grow them? But they were laughing, there, you know, some of them yeah. were in tears. Yeah. There was one care home in Warrington where this lady came with a carer and she said, they've taken my cat off me. Mm. So I said, oh, I said, I love my cat, but they've taken it away. So I said, do you want me to draw your cat? So she said, would you? So she had a picture of a cat, so I drew this cat. And then she looked at it and she just burst into tears and said, you brought my cat back, you brought my cat back. And uh, the carer hugged me and said, oh, this has made it. And she went away really smiling and um, the care home sent me a photograph of the framed picture mm. of her and the cat and this lady looking at the cat lovingly. Mm. And they said, you have brought this cat into, back into her life. Mm. And in her mind, the cat was real and she talked to it. It is extraordinary, isn't it, how these creative arts can connect in a way that yeah. other things can't, whether it's art or cartoons or music, poetry. Yep, yep, it, absolutely. It really is. Do you think through all these, those sort of ways, Tony, and the way we're trying to reduce the stigma and raise awareness of what dementia is, do you think in the time, so 2011 your dad died, but do you think things have improved in this country at all? I think they have. I think there is more awareness. And there are some amazing people working in the dementia world now. And there always were, but they, I think it's not finished. We're not there yet. I mean, carers are so undervalued. And so my next book I would like to do is about a carer and just to highlight the passion and the love that these the carers have. And not, not just family carers, but carers in, in care homes who do amazing jobs. And I think that's the next progress that's where it has to be for me. I think there is still a stigma without any question and the, like the stigmas around drugs and things, but I think people are beginning to understand it. And with the Vicky McClure choir thing and other people like Terry Pratchett, 
opening up, you know, the, about their lives and and making it that oh wow they can get it. There's you know the guy from ACDC, the, the guitarist, rhythm guitarist, that has it, and they they're using that the power of ACDC to talk Absolutely. about dementia. I do say to people, I think that you know the use of celebrities to talk about it is so effective because weirdly the public think they know celebrities. It was like when Barbara Windsor. It was yeah, made public. Yeah, and and you yeah. sort of know, you think you know Babs. I mean, obviously, I yeah. don't. You might well, Tony, but I don't. But you sort of think you do. And if yeah. she can get it, it's almost the same as thinking if my mum can get it. I think as soon as somebody you love gets it, then you the stigma does go for you because they're, yeah. you know that they're them, you know, and they're still me, uh, still yeah. my mum. That's that strange thing with celebrities. It takes away the fear, as you say. Yeah, it does, and it thinks, well, I mean, it's like when Tom Hanks got the the virus, you're thinking, well, Tom Hanks can get it. Geez, Tom Hanks is one of the, seems like one of the nicest people mm. in the world, anyway. Mm. And mm. it was like, wow, well, Tom Hanks has got it. So or Prince and Charles, Prince Charles, and our Boris got it. So mm. you know, anybody all, can get it. Mm. Anybody can get anything. And um, and the thing with, as we know, like if you break a leg or you have cancer, it's visible, and people can understand that. But it, it's hard for people to understand the um, any mental illness. Or... It is. It's very similar, I think, the stigma, isn't it, to a mental illness stigma. And when, yeah. I remember once do, writing a piece and I spoke to somebody whose husband had had dementia and she was saying that, you know, much as she tried to keep going and giving him, you know, the things he wanted to do, still go out to the theatre, it was because she never quite knew what he'd do and because his behaviour would be to anybody else, you know, extremely odd, he might suddenly get up or say something I mean and obviously for the rest of the theatre that was not great you know it's this fear of doing something odd yeah and people yeah, looking yeah. and making judgments and yes, mm. yes. And that's, I got to know some Malcolm Walker who's head of Iceland food and stores mm. uh, Malcolm's wife's got dementia and he's a big advocate and a supporter of dementia charities and he ended up buying 5,000 copies of my book to give to clients and his staff mm to give it on help yeah. understand but um i did a poster for him which was a queue at a cash point in a, a store mm. and it was a lady obviously with a credit card but she's struggling the cashier sat patiently but everybody else in the queue is mm. like at the watch and mm. took it mm. and the headline was please be patient i might be living with dementia and i gave this to malcolm as a present and he had it put over every till in every brilliant every mm. store in, in iceland and there's 900 stores excellent so there's but that's the thing, you know, where you see someone who is struggling at the front of a queue and people have no patience. Mm. This happened to me before when I could see this lady was struggling mm. and the lady next to her was, like, touching. And mm. I just said, excuse me, I think the lady's struggling for a reason here. Mm. Mm. And she said to me, yes, I can't remember my card number. And the was, like, touching away. So I, we managed to sort it for her and the cashier was brilliant. But the woman in the queue was really... She'd actually stormed off, and I'm thinking I wanted to follow her and say, "This lady has got a problem. You know, you shouldn't be like that." Yeah, and it's that education and that awareness thing. It that's... is. It's the education, isn't it? And really, it's not born. It doesn't sound great, actually, that other lady, but it's not normally born out of any sort of malice. It's just born out of ignorance and. Yeah, and, and, and this need in this society today to rush everywhere. Rush everywhere. Mm, I think and maybe I think COVID was... has sort of stopped us in our tracks a bit, literally. <laughs> It has, because I know I'm sort of a bit manic and dash around everywhere mm -hmm. and I was running here and there, but I've learned to slow down and relax and be kind of taking the world. And the other thing with dementia is the power of nature. Mm 
Mm. And the power mm. of taking my dad and sat in the park, mm. just sat there with the sounds and the smells mm. and... Mm. And that sort of washes you in this sort of calm and serenity. Mm. That's a Sylvia Plath, isn't it? You know, the seemingly small things, the snowfall, exactly. the yeah. trees yeah. blowing in the wind. And, exactly. Yeah. And if you can see that, mm. then that's... that's stop great, in the moment, yeah. which you also mention. Yeah, so stop of, in the moment, yeah. Mm. So yeah. incredible. And your book, I think, is really powerful because of its simplicity in a way and all the messages that it very gently and humorously makes. Just tell us, we must draw to a close, but just tell us... I thought the story of how that came about and its title in particular is so lovely, Tony, and also about the blackbird. I mean, you said how the book came about. I'm in my studio late one night with a bottle of Rioja and start talking to my dad. I just said to him, Dad, what was it like to have dementia? Do you remember? And I remember his voice saying, I had dementia and asking me to remember because he had a good sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I felt, Silly question. I felt, yeah, that's question, Dad, and I'm talking to no one. But it was a bit like I was like a film director talking off screen to someone, and that's how I visualised it. So I started to draw. I drew three pages. The first two were in colour. The third one's in black and white because I think the rocker had kicked in and couldn't be bothered colouring in. But it kind of starts with it was like toothache. It slowly built up and built up. And then at the end, where my dad just says, can you imagine anything worse than losing memory of everything and everyone you've ever loved. He said, can anything be so cruel? And those, and that was in three drawings. I sent them to Stephen Fry eventually after a long time. Stephen loved them. He's in tears. Can I tweet them? And I said, yeah. And then a publisher contacted me. And I met this little lady called Fritha Saunders, and we worked together on the book. And my title for the book was pretty silly, like, what, I've got dementia? Um, oh, sorry, I forgot I've got dementia or something like that, which was corny. But I'd had this thing where I'd, one day I was, my dad hadn't said anything to anyone for weeks and it was getting close to the end. And so I had a deadline to do and it was for Anne Summers. Um, <laughs> of course, it had to be, didn't it? Yeah. yeah, it had to be. My dad would have hated it. It was called the Karma Sutra, spelled C-A-L-M-E-R. <laughs> which is available in all good bookshops. No, it's not. Now it's gone. But I had all these cartoons to do. I won't say there was six or nine to do. There wasn't. And I sat in the... Um, I've only just got that, Tony, so I'm a bit slow. <laughs> um, there was, actually. That was part of the joke. But the, um, so I'm sat and drawing all these cartoons that my dad and my mum would have hated. And my dad was just asleep, like a constant sleep mm. now. So at the end of it, it was going dark, and I was like, go for, get something to eat, go home, get some food. And I just leaned over and said, right, I'm off now, Dad, bye, I love you, and gave him a kiss on the forehead. I got to the door, and he just said, take care, son. Mm. And it was like, wow. And I went back and said, Dad, Dad. But he'd just gone, mm. gone back into it. And in the book, I say it's like a candle that flickers mm. back to life and mm. then goes out. And then it went out forever. And we were all around him. It was about four in the morning um, at the care home, who, were, I've got to say, were fabulous all through this. And my dad passed away, and as he passed away, outside in the garden, a blackbird started singing. And I thought his spirit has passed into nature, and the blackbirds picked up the energy, you know, the sense of it, and was singing. So I do love the blackbird anyway, but I've got a special fondness for the blackbird. So the very last drawing in the book is a blackbird singing. So that's where that came from. But um... That's beautiful, Tony. It's so lovely. Thank you for sharing all that with us. And I know that finally you asked, you wanted to write, uh, read a poem that you've written? Yeah, it's another poem on. about my dad. And again, it's about, just about him 
being my dad and the, you know someone I loved and mm. who loved me very much. So mm-hmm. it's just it's called caring. Can I just say thank you then, Tony? I won't say anything after the poem because it would be nice to finish with that. But thank you for being such a brilliant, brilliant, and you would be brilliant. But thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Pepper. It's been fun. It's been good. And and also we've had a laugh as well, which is again <laughs> very important. What it's, what it's about, yeah. Mm. So this poem is called Caring, and it starts. I know you, Dad, what you once were, the mighty heights that you have reached, like landing on that D-Day beach, or boogie-woogie in smoky bars and draining all those bitter jars. Tales of family, football and fights, of work and pleasure and human rights. Yes, I know you, Dad, what you once were. As we sit here now, your mind a blur. So I'll make a pot of tea, a mug for you, and a mug for me, and I will talk of what you were, hoping for you a memory to stir. And that's from a dad. Creativity, humour, love. These are what drive Tony Husband. I so enjoy listening to his endless stories and funny little anecdotes. Don't know if you noticed, but I was unusually quiet during this podcast. I hardly needed to intervene and didn't want to stop his wonderful flow. The dementia sector is lucky to have this talented man as a champion. Life isn't always easy for any of us. It's bloody hard sometimes, as Tony says. But as he also says, and it's perhaps worth all of us remembering, life is about laughing. Tony mentioned the calendar he created for Exeter Dementia Action Alliance. You can find the Alliance website at www.dementiaaction.org.uk and you can buy Tony's cartoon book, Take Care, Son, The Story of My Dad and His Dementia at amazon.co.uk. And as ever... For more help and support, you can visit DementiaUK.org and the Alzheimer's Society at alzheimers.org.uk. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast And then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.